If you would turn in your Bibles to Acts 5. <clears throat> Many of you are in different seats this morning. I'm just going to mention that. It's throwing me off. I'm feeling like I've got vertigo. I don't know if you guys got together in advance and conspired, but it's a little weird. Acts 5. Last week, we um, looked at sort of the effect that persecution and adversity was, was having upon the early church. Um, you'll remember that uh, the religious leaders didn't take too kindly to the fact that Peter and John had healed a man in the temple and done so in the name of Jesus and by his authority and were preaching about him. And so, of course, they arrested them and then before releasing them, ordered them not to share any longer in that name, in the name of Jesus. But neither the arrest nor the threat would silence or slow the witness of the early church. In fact, if anything, the impact it seemed to have is it really seemed to galvanize them together. It seemed to embolden them uh, in their witness and in their, their devotion and their care for one another. And so as we kind of, we left off uh, with the passage last week with this very beautiful and sort of idyllic vision of, of what the church could look like or ought to look like. We see this beautiful time of, of unity and a real love for God and a real selfless love for neighbor. That's what the church should look like. You'll recall this passage actually back in chapter four, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. One in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And then a little further down in verse 34, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. But then, sort of oddly, or at least oddly to me, uh, the text goes on to give us a very specific instance where this took place, which is, is weird. We're told generally that it took place, but then we we get this detail in verse 36. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, for me, when I'm reading this, I'm kind of like, why, why do they give us this extra bit of data here? It seems, it seems to be a little bit extraneous or a little bit redundant. Why, why this specific reference? Why do we need to know about Barnabas and precisely uh, what he did. And I think the point here, I think this is strategically told to us in order that we would understand the shocking thing that's about to happen after this. Because all of a sudden, this time of great unity and devotion and love for one another and this time of generosity is suddenly interrupted by a scandal and a sudden death. And this description here of Barnabas and, and his gift is told to us because we're meant to see it as the model case. That way, by contrast, when we look at Ananias and Sapphira, we can see theirs as the fraudulent case. They're, the one is clarified by the other. This is a classic move, by the way, uh, by a physician, Dr. Dr. Luke, the author of our, of our book here, is a physician. This is something that might happen if you go into the clinic and you say, hey, I'm pretty sure I broke this finger. See how crooked it is. What's the physician going to say? Why don't you put it up next to the other one? 
And then you might look at it and go, no, they're both crooked. That's just the way you are, right? Or in this case, wow, that's really crooked. Uh, this one is straight, what Barnabas did. This one is crooked, what they did. We can, see, we can see the error because of the contrast. So the big thing I want you to take away this morning in the box, right at the top of your handout, um, if you have that in front of you, what we find here in this kind of terrifying story, we see that God acted sharply in order to protect the integrity and the legitimacy of the early church. The sudden death that we see here, I think actually is a, ultimately a severe kindness. I think it is the severe kindness that we will see. So Acts 5.1. Now a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. You notice that also there points us right up to compare against the one that was right before it. That's one of the ways we know this. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. A great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some of the men, the young men came forward, wrapped up his body and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that's the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. All right, this is a sobering passage, right? This has got some sting to it, and I'm not going to remove the sharp edges. We're going to leave the tone. We're going to leave the sting, and we're going to let God's word cut us where it needs to cut us. The first thing I think we need to clear up right away, this is very important. I want to start with clarity and then kind of move into some of the minutia. The key issue with the error here of this couple is that they misrepresent their gift. It's that they misrepresent it. Presumably, it was perfectly fine for them to keep a portion of the proceeds. No reason not to. Uh, or, I mean, there had been, um, if, as long as they had been upfront about it, right? There was no rule against this, no law against this. Perfectly legitimate thing they could have done. In fact, I think Peter sort of underscores this with his question in verse 4 when he asks, Was not the money you received from the land at your disposal? It was yours, right? It was yours to do with what you chose to do with it. Um, but the Greek word that's used here for kept back, um, it's uh, nofisomai, and it's only used in the New Testament to refer to theft, stealing, or embezzlement. So that basically indicates to us, I think, one of two things. Either one, there was some kind of verbal agreement beforehand, right? 
maybe in a conversation that's not recorded for us, so I don't know that. That's kind of a speculative guess. Or the second one, that something about their gesture uh, was deceitful. And, and I actually lean towards the latter. I think it was most likely something about particularly the way they presented the gift um, that looked one way and it actually was another. Specifically, this idea of laying it at the apostles' feet. This seems to uh, kind of be a gesture of signaling a full and no-strings-attached release of a gift. Um, So whatever it was, whether it was that they broke a verbal contract that they already had or that they were signaling, right? Use the phrase virtue signaling, signaling a full and submissive gift while actually keeping some back. What's clear is that what they did was a pretentious show, a religious ritual only. It was aimed at looking more generous than they were actually being. And so at the root of this, this sort of giving gesture for them is actually prideful posturing. They're just using this occasion to make themselves look good. Um, John Stott said it very well. He says that their motive in giving was not to relieve the poor, but to fatten their own ego. Posing one way, but in reality doing something very different. And I think that perspective helps us a little bit with what is the natural question when we come to this, which is why did God act so harshly? Why so severe here? Why not a verbal warning? You know, hey guys, this is uh, strike one. Don't do that again. Or a written warning, write them up, you know. You guys are on notice. Or a good old-fashioned plague, like let's give them something harsh. Like you're now cat people. You have to have a minimum of six cats all the time. That's your plague. Why is it that God acts so severely with them? And so I think there's a few answers here. The first is this. The church is in its infancy, right? It's just days or even weeks old. It's new. It's fragile. It's just getting up and going. And while there has been a powerful ministry up to this point, a scandal like this, right at the ground floor, uh, could have terrible effects, tarnishing the witness of the church and even sort of opening the doors to all kinds of predatorial acts, right, from inside or from outside. So uh, while I think it seems incredibly harsh, let me ask you to consider this. How much pain and maybe how many lives were saved because of this shrewd discipline? So this seems harsh, but maybe it could have been a lot worse. It almost seems like in this case, what God performs here in the body of Christ is a bit of an amputation. And sometimes amputation is good medicine. Doesn't look like it. You've got a friend who limps into the doctor's office, is feeling sick and has got an infection going on with this leg, and he comes out without the leg. You know, your first inclination is, I'm not sure that was good medicine. But if the physician is saving the life of the patient and willing to sacrifice that bit, it is good and wise medicine, even if it's harsh, even if it's, it's shrewd, so to speak. There's also um, some parody with this. Uh, in the Old Testament, there's another incident that came to mind. I'm curious if you guys are as sharp as first service. 
Can you think of an incident in the Old Testament where a similar kind of harsh discipline happened, a kind of sudden death? I'll give you a hint, Joshua. Achan, how about Achan? Now, his death came because he was stoned by the community of God, but same kind of thing, same kind of secret, treacherous sin. If you're not familiar with the story, here we have Israel being taken out of bondage in Egypt, given the law, and over time, God taking them into the promised land. And then they miraculously uh, defeat Jericho, right? In a way that could only give credit to God for how it was done. And, but then we're told in Joshua 7 <coughs> that Achan coveted and stole some of the plunder. And the passage says, so the Lord's anger burned against Israel. Um, what happens here too is not only does he steal it and hide it, but then, um, if you remember, Israel goes into Ai, to the battle there, and God is kind of like, I'm not going with you. You got sin in the camp, I'm not blessing this charade. And he doesn't go, and they go, and they get defeated, and 36 Israelites are killed. So to the point I made earlier, here we have this shrewd death, but how many lives might have been saved? Because in the Old Testament, in this story with Achan and Ai, 36 people were killed needlessly. The corruption of a few led directly to the destruction of many. Um, one commentator said this, the sin of Achan and that of Ananias were in many respects similar at the beginning of the churches of the Old and the New Testament, respectfully. So in both cases, what we find is an individual selfishly using the program of God to benefit themselves and posturing while doing it. So the second reason here um, that I think this action was so harsh or so sharp was that their failure was not simply um, withholding, as we've said. It was deception. It was prideful posturing. In other words, they, they wanted the credit and the prestige for sacrificing generos generously uh, without the inconvenience of having to do it, right? And so to get this reputation that they had no right to, they put on a little bit of a religious show. And it's interesting in the scriptures, you know, there are not many things that God says that he hates. But in Amos, in Amos 5, listen to what he says about the religious show of Israel at that time. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Or we can hear it in the positive way that Jesus said it when he quotes the prophet Hosea. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. In other words, I don't want the show. I don't want the pretense. I don't want the posturing. I want your heart and your real and right action. I want real justice, not an apology after the fact. God cares more about our heart's love for him than the rituals that we keep up 
when our hearts are not in them. Um, I think we also see here that there's, there's a greater risk than just the individual consequence of, of one person's showy sin. And that's our third point here. The, the dishonest act, it threatens the integrity of the church's witness. And therefore, it draws the Lord anger. It draws the Lord's anger. Um, if we were to do a bit of a survey, if we were to say, hey, let's, let's all together, let's just come up with some uh, attributes of God. Which ones do you know? And we started listing them off. You know, we would quickly come up with his love and his mercy, his grace, his omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence. We, we would come up with these quickly. I wonder how long it would take for somebody to go, anger. But anger is an attribute of the Lord, even as we saw in the Joshua passage. His anger burned against Israel. Thankfully, our God is not quick to anger. In Exodus 34, we get, the, I think, one of the best pictures of God in all of the scripture. It is, in fact, his self-revelation as he passes in front of Moses, proclaiming, the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin, yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That last line is not read very often. It's not nearly as sweet as the preceding lines. The anger of God is something we have to contend with. We may not like it, but it's part of who he is. Tim Keller describes anger as, um, and I think this is a great and helpful definition, he describes anger as energy that is released to defend something that you love. Energy released to defend something that you love. In fact, I could tell you, you, you will oftentimes discover what you love because your anger will kind of flare up on something. It's a way of showing you and telling you that. But again, our, our God, is, he's not hot-headed, He's not a capricious God. Thankfully, he is slow to anger. But when his anger is lit, it is to defend what God loves. Um, one of my college roommates, <clears throat> his name was Justin. He was such a good friend. He was the best man in my wedding. And he had just an excellent father. His name was Phil. Um, Phil was a pastor in... Um, uh, in Bellevue area, and um, actually there's a family here that uh, knows them, yeah. And Phil is just one of these guys, he's just um, strapping, he's athletic, he's probably about 6'3", and, and with all of that strength, he is, he is calm, he is meek, he is humble, and saturated with the word of God, and he's been a good counselor to me over the years. Uh, well, one day, Justin tells me this story, one day in high school, uh, he was mouthing off, he was a bit of a punk. He'd tell you that about himself. And, um, and he lit into his mom. And he called her something that a woman should never be called, and I certainly won't repeat it here in church. And he dropped this expletive in front of his dad. And his dad, with righteous anger, reached out and got him by the neck and put him on the ground in one move and looked at him and said with control, that's my wife. And Justin said, that's the end of how that went right there. <laughs> Quickest way to make a man angry, 
Harm his bride. Quickest way to make the Lord angry. Harm his bride, the church. We are the bride of Christ. And this couple put it in jeopardy. And the Lord put him down. We see also that, thankfully, this sudden death, harsh as it was, it didn't prevent the rise of the Christian church. And that's cool. I mean, it scared people. They went, whoa, we're not just playing church. This is a real God. This is real power. It got their attention, but it did not prevent the rise of the church. Verse 12. The apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people. And all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were uh, highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed the Lord and were added to their number. As a result, people brought the sick into the streets and laid them on the beds and mats so that at least Peter's shadow might fall on some of them as he passed by. Crowds gathered also from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing their sick and those tormented by impure spirits, and all of them were healed. What incredible power God poured out at this time to authenticate the gospel and to authenticate his saving work in Christ. And that's what becomes clear to the people. This is legit, this is real, and we can't play anymore. This God is not to be trifled with. Christianity is not a weak anemic faith. It is something that with God's careful pruning and careful cultivation, he caused it to grow early on. And it is resilient today. Um, I want to take away, just kind of look at four takeaways from this, um, this passage uh, that I think are important. And the first is this, that God takes sin seriously. You know, sometimes we can be lighthearted about that. We have desserts named after sin, right? We kind of play around with the word as though it's not a big deal. I just remind you, it was such a big deal that to deal with it, God sent his son to die. And the reality is, all sin will be judged either in us as unrepentant or in Christ on our behalf. But God takes sin seriously. He does not sweep it under the carpet. He kills it. And believe me, you want it killed in Christ, not in you. Secondly, God loves the church. He loves the church. It is his bride. That's what he calls it. There is no sweeter word. There is no stronger affection that you could communicate in language. My bride, most important person, thing, relationship, whatever, on planet earth other than my relationship with the Lord. I'll die for her happily, right? That's what we say. And God calls the church his bride. Thirdly, the Lord will protect the church from threats inside and outside. And I think that ought to be a real comfort to us, an encouragement. Because, you know, we read some pretty ugly statistics these days, don't we? If you pick up like any Barna report... It, all of the statistics are typically bad. Church is in decline. This is happening, blah, blah, blah. All of the Barna reports seem to say that. And I don't have a beef with Barna. They're doing a fine job. David Kidman was a friend of mine at, at Biola. I even dated his sister on a couple occasions. So there's that too. So no, no beef against Barna here. But 
But when the stats and the stories are frequently derogatory towards the church, it is helpful to remember that the Lord will protect it from those outside it and from those inside it. He made a promise to Peter, right? I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. And so that should give us comfort. And then finally, again, I don't want to remove the sting of this passage. It's meant, it's meant to sting. God's people should give careful thought to their ways. God doesn't want a show of rituals. He wants your heart through and through. He wants real justice from a real heart that really loves him and loves neighbor as self. So give careful thought to your ways. Let's pray. Lord, this is one of those passages that makes us sit straight up and open our eyes and do an audit of our life. And we see in our own heart, probably for most of us, Lord, many sins that had we been there in that moment would have dropped us dead too. We're grateful, Lord, that we stand on this side of the cross, that we have received the mercy of Jesus. But we're also humbled, for we have been given a high calling to live up and to live into the likeness of Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that you would draw us uh, increasingly to yourself. That where sin uh, has crept in or gotten a foothold or is living in secret, may we confess it and kill it by bringing it into the light. Lord, I think of John Owen's statement, be killing sin or it'll be killing you. You have cautioned us against these things, not because they're arbitrary, but because they're destructive to us and to your church and to the world. So Lord, keep us in your ways. Help us to desire holiness for its goodness. But thank you for the grace and mercy that we find in Christ Jesus who died for our sin. We're glad that it will be paid for in him. We pray in his name. Amen.